I'm looking at Charmaine Lou for the final thumbs up. Okay, all right. Uh, so we'll leave it at that. So today is a unique Sunday, and um, we've obviously we're kind of in that weird season between the Christmas time and then before Lent and Easter. And so I want, I'm so glad you're here, but spread the word about to people. If you see someone missing for a week or two and you don't know, follow up, just ask in kindness, hey, we miss you. We want you to be part of our community. But these Sundays we do four times a year, usually in a five Sunday month, we'll do a Sunday for Q&A or Q&R response would be a little more humble way of saying that. But everyone knows what Q&A is, so just putting Q&R up there sometimes doesn't... People are like, what is that? Okay, it means that we don't have claim to have all the answers. We're more responding to your questions. A few things here. If you have questions, text them in. Um, I don't think... Did we hand out paper today? We do have paper slips. So our, our greeter team will help collect those and bring them to Charmaine and Anne, who will put the questions on the screen. Um, basic rules of the Q&A, again, uh, are... Get a question in, and we'll try to go through as many as we can, usually within like 30 to 45 minutes, depending on how many questions and how you all are feeling and how we're feeling up here as well. Second rule thing is these uh, responses or, or answers are on the fly. Like we're not thinking about these ahead of time, so we do reserve the right to, to reframe, restate, or utterly deny what we said later <laughs> because, again, uh, you know, if you've said something in a conversation, you're like, ah, I really should say this or that, or I, I, that was not, I don't know that I got my meaning across. That happens. So walk in grace with the responses. If something, like, gets you really, like, excited or really, like, fired up in not a good way, follow up with a coffee or phone call because probably we're missing something or miscommunicating on some level. This is not official, um, you know, printed doctrine of Pilgrim Baptist Church. This is two people responding who are on on the team here. So um, remember that as well. And then um, there's a third thing I always say, and my mind is not recalling it. So maybe maybe I covered it in all of that. Um, So anyway, thank you for your questions. Ask anything, really anything. Um, they may modify them if there's, an, if there's like two questions that are exactly or very, very similar. Um, if that is the case and you feel like your question has not been answered, just text it in again. And uh, so, yeah, um, I think that's enough with that. Why don't you stand one more time as Josh comes to join me and we're going to pray before we get going. And today's uh, Q&A res- uh, sparring person is Josh. Uh, hopefully everyone here, unless you're brand new this Sunday, Josh is our associate pastor. And so this is his first Q&A as well. Go easy on Josh or not. Eh, uh, he'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Josh is up here too. And sometimes it's a staff member or an elder. Sometimes it's a guest that we've had as, a, as coming back. And if it's a guest, I do a little more host style interview Q&A versus like we're just sort of taking them as people. Uh, who are part of our church together. So let's pray. So Lord, as we engage in this uh, four times a year, we know that this is in some ways similar to ancient rabbinical or Socratic method, um, wrestling with questions and in live conversation, modified for our time, of course. And God, we do pray that out of this, there comes some light and not just heat. Um, And God, that uh, some of these things that are in our hearts and minds, that it doesn't end with whatever we have to say, but that it goes back in dialogue in our communities, whether in home churches this week, discussing and going through these questions again with others in in a more intimate setting, and in the other venues of our church and community that this is not intended to be one, you know, the the be-all and end-all of conversation and dialogue in our church, but it is a example, a snapshot of one of many ways to engage. And so, Holy Spirit, give us wisdom, give Josh wisdom, uh, calm any any fears or anxieties we may have or anyone here may have if this is something new for them in a church setting as well. 
Uh, Lord, I pray that our church is known as a place that's safe for people to be on a journey to question with freedom, and that even if we don't have a good answer or response, that you, Lord, uh, can handle anything. <laughs> so you've seen it all, uh, and, and yet you love us, and, and, and still, and indeed not simply yet, but you created us out of love. So um, help us to walk in that light as well. May this be part of our discipleship process and modeling it even in our larger gatherings in Jesus' name. And if you're willing to say amen, amen, amen. be seated this morning. Josh, do you have any uh, pre-words you want to say before we go through questions? Since, I, I mean, I, I asked, I didn't force you to be here, but you are like a staff team member, so, you, yeah. you know. I'll just reinforce that previous point of everything we say is provisional. <laughs> I, I reserve the right to take back anything I say tonight, and yeah, I am always open to new information changing my mind, so. I hope that that is a model for all of you as well. All right, all right. Um, and volume-wise, are we good? Not too loud, not too soft. Sarah won't fall asleep. You can hear us? You're good? Okay, thumbs up. <laughs> all right. This bang is, all right, good deal. Um, okay, well, what we'll do then, have we got some questions that have come in? Lots of questions? Enough, enough. Okay. <laughs> This, I will read the question, so Josh, uh, you've, I don't know if you've watched one of these in the past, but I'll read the question, and then sometimes I'll defer to you. I am absolutely going to defer to you on this one, but I'll read the question first. Right. Light, medium, or dark roast? Tea, Ovaltine. Is this the World War II? What's going on here? <laughs> All right. Josh, light, medium, or dark roast? Tea or Ovaltine? I, I, or modify the question if it's appropriate to do so. so. You know, I, I am kind of, a, I like medium roast, but sometimes... Dark roast, when you're in that kind of chocolatey mood, I go for the dark roast. But generally, I want something a little bit more bright in the morning, so I go for medium shell. No, no, no. Now, dark roast generally is like it's a dark, it's a deeper, um, like it's roasted more, right? Yeah, so like it's, you got more oils on so the surface of the beans. A little more like campfire. Yeah, so you, you could get like the darker, more bitter yeah, sometimes, yeah. Um, okay, whereas okay. you'll get the more acid from the mediums. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm like at this stage in life because I'm fully middle-aged, I'm, I'm like whatever coffee is available that doesn't require Fair. too much work on my part. So, uh, yeah, but I, I like medium roasts as well. Um, but I usually put a little bit of cream in now, uh, and then I'll start with calf in the morning and well, actually I'll start with like half calf in the morning and go to like full decaf most days in the afternoon. Um, because yeah, nowadays the concerns are more about anxiety and caffeine. So see, that's just, it just ruins you as you get old, man. All so, right. All right. Um, when I get there. Next question. Let's move on here. Uh, unless you have anything. What, do, what does the church believe about divorce? How long does someone need to wait to find love after a divorce? Ooh. We went from like light and fluffy into like boom. Okay. What does the church believe about divorce? How long does someone need to wait to find love after a divorce? Wow. Okay. I'm going to start and then sure. come up with good stuff. All right, okay. All right. um, so number one, what does the church? I am going to answer that. Uh, uh, like the church as in all of the churches across time, there's been some debates about divorce. Um, but more specifically, I'm going to answer that from, from where I come, my context. And then I'm going to say this, that uh, Jesus, in talking to the Pharisees, talks about that there is a permission for divorce in the case of, and again, how I would translate this into our time, but certainly adultery uh, or unfaithfulness in marriage or, and I think unfaithfulness we would define to include things like abuse, uh, which I've heard many different interpretations on and certainly in first century probably would have included that kind of level of being unfaithful and breaking the covenant. Uh, so I think that's, there's divorce is permissible. 
Um, the problem in the first century with divorce within the Jewish context, though, was that um, the, only a male could, could the, the, the male had to sign off or had to ish, get the writ of divorce issued. And still within some Orthodox Jewish communities, that is still the case. And a woman has to go through a lot of, sometimes it can be a real onerous if the guy doesn't want to grant the divorce, but practically speaking, you know, he's living with another woman, you know, there's all things from every, any other context. So in the ancient world, Keep in mind when Jesus is talking about the hardness of their hearts, saying that a, a man would, you know, could divorce a woman for burning, I think one of the ancient rabbis said, for burning the food, you know, uh, <laughs> rid of divorce, you know. Um, and, and it's interesting when Jesus is talking about this as well, there is this piece of raising up the status of the woman within the context beyond the Jewish and first century context in terms of that, that divorce and the support of a woman as well. And so there's a lot of issues in New Testament when we read about divorce around women and their rights or lack thereof, and also uh, the issue of support. There was not social nets outside of your family systems, generally speaking. Um, so yeah. And how long does someone need to wait to find love after a divorce? Uh, I, I wonder if that question's more about, I mean, I would say it's contextual, number one, right? Like, well, what were the wounds, what were the things that happened in the relationship that caused that marriage to break down to a point of divorce, and have you dealt with that stuff? Because if you just jump into another relationship, but you haven't dealt with the things that, and even if it was an 80%, 20% thing, you still got to own your 20% fully, do therapy, do some biblical counseling, do you find the resources to work on wholeness. So I would say the question is, are you at a higher level of health, uh, you know, baseline above however you want to measure it, 50%, before you jump into a new relationship? I think that's true of any, you know, a dating relationship, whatever. Like you want to wait until you're at a level where you're coming to that relationship from a healthier place because that'll help you also see the red flags in people that you'll be blind to if you're just you're trying to fill a hole in your heart, right? Um, you know, there's ways to, to experience a fullness in life um, that don't require immediately jumping into a, an intimate relationship with someone. So this is a huge question. We could spend the whole rest of the day on all the pieces in this that this brings up, but um, I'll, I'll kick it over to Josh here to see if he wants to add any particular things that jump out. Yeah, we could definitely do a whole weekend retreat on, you know, because when you ask about divorce, you also have to ask, what does the church believe about marriage? <clears throat> and I think... Like, what, what do you guys believe about marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? How do you see it? Um, how does the world see it? And how does that kind of tar our beliefs about what marriage, the meaning of marriage is for? And so I think if you were to boil down, I think, what does the church believe about marriage? Um, and you can, you can go historically, you can go the past 2,000 years, you can go Catholic, Orthodox, you go through um, what Baptists believe about marriage. But, you know, the way I framed it um, when, when we were getting married was we are getting married, the purpose of our marriage is to grow in our Christ-likeness. Um, and you can grow in Christ-likeness with or without marriage, um, but, especially, but within marriage there are ways you can grow towards Christ-likeness. I think you know, a big part of as you know, one of them is to die to yourself, to uh, put the others first, to love as Christ loved the church. I think there's a huge part of that that we learn in marriage. And so when you ask the question, well, what about divorce then? I think, yeah, there's abuse, there's unfaithfulness to that covenant promise. Um, but, you know, let's say everything, like they're not, you're not being abused, you're not being cheated on or anything, and you just don't like each other or something. Um, 
the, you know, I'd go back to, well, why did you get married in the first place? And I think as the church, if we see our marriage as a formational way to grow in Christ-likeness of dying to self, maybe not putting your preferences first and putting the other person's preferences first, then that's a way that we can grow. Um, and so how long does someone need to wait to find love? Again, it's like, what, what exactly are you looking for in life? Are you looking to fulfill your romantic desires, your um, hormonal desires, or, or something along those lines? Or are you looking for uh, intimacy? And can you find intimacy? Can you find that love outside of a romantic relationship? And if you need that romance, again, are you looking to grow in Christ-likeness, or are you trying to fill another need and I think as a church if we're like like in the in the like Paul even says I would prefer you remain like me uh, assuming he was either single or uh, previously married or something like well, that he also thought the Lord was coming back within his lifetime Fair, too, yeah, so that, yeah. he does say that like yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah. you know I mean, anyway, there's, okay, there's a lot on. of people in here sorry, who sorry, might believe that too. So. Sorry, finish your thought. Finish your thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but um, you know, like if you can find that in community, find that intimacy in friendship, and if you can grow in Christ-likeness, I think that would be good. But again, um, very contextual question. You know, we'll have to have see each situation and judge from there what is wisest. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question, whoever put it in. Great question. Um, we could say so much more. I think we'll move on, um, but please follow up. Josh has the answer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, please follow up uh, with people that you trust and can speak into your life. Um, yeah. How do I not let my achievements or failures define me, but rather my relationship with Jesus? Oh, that's a beautiful question. That's a good one. Um, Josh, you want to lead off on that one? I've got sure. tons of stuff, but I, let's, let's hear. Well, the idea of achievements, what we do in life defining us, that is... I don't want to say a completely modern concept, but the, the self-identity, um, how we define ourselves. So we live in, I just read this book, uh, The Church at the End of Innovation, and so it's, it's really on my mind right now. But anyways, we live in this culture where our identity is kind of based off of us, ourselves, what we do, whatever we accomplish, whatever we do, our skills, our talents, our abilities, how um, the world sees us, our fame, our, uh, our clout on Instagram or TikTok. Like, there's a lot of ways that we define the self based off of those kind of um, measures. Now, I think if you start by seeing this culture that we're in, you know, taking a step back and, and looking at it from that point, uh, that might be step one is is revalidating well, why do I identify myself in the like with my achievements or so and it is a huge cultural pressure, social pressure that we get to be that way, even our parents might even say, you know um, you know you better work hard, you better get a good education, you better get a certain job, you know make something of yourself. those things are what will define you that 's your worth in life. It has a lot to do with your self worth as well, I think um, but as we so I think step one, you take a step back and you, and you see, okay, well, maybe it's just societal pressures, it's cultural pressures. Um, because the, and another way that I look at it, too, is if I were to lose my hands, um, if I couldn't play guitar, if I couldn't cook anymore, uh, there is this part of me that thinks, like, back in the day, I'd be like, man, what would I do with myself? Would I kill myself because I couldn't? You know, if I lost my eyesight, if I lost my hearing, if I lost my tongue, would I still value this life? Um, and we, 
we do live in kind of an ableist culture where your abilities, your disabilities, again, define you versus that relationship with Jesus. And so finding your identity and self-worth in that relationship with Jesus, I think it, to, to, to do that, how do I do that? Right? How do you do that? I think you have to spend time with people who also do that. I think you have to let your community form you. Um, you know, one hour on a Sunday might not be enough to you know, to fight against the, all the pressures of the world telling you to do and achieve and become. Um, I think if you're around people who also do that now, how did I do that? Um, I don't know. I think, I think I was raised... A big part of it is if you're raised in a area of unconditional love, um, an environment of unconditional love and acceptance that, yeah, what you do doesn't define who you are, um, but... You are loved whether or not you lose your eyesight, your hands, your, um, yeah, but it's rather, I don't know, you, you got anything? I think, again, it's one of those deep mm -hmm. questions you could go in many different directions on. Um, I don't know that I want to add much more to what you've said. Um, ultimately, I think part of getting your relationship defined with Jesus, I mean, this is one of the beauties of the local church is that Ultimately, we don't, shouldn't value each other for what we can volunteer or produce in our church, but that this is a safe place just to be and to, and to be reaffirmed and that you are uh, created by your creator who loves you and cares for you and that part of our mission as a church is actually to remind people. Now, tomorrow, many of you are going to go out and work and you're going to have success defined for you in metrics in terms of what you can produce or how many widgets you can create, digital or, or material or whatever. Um, but in this house, well, yes, we want you to volunteer some of your time and talents, and yes, we want you to give, and yes, we want you to do all those things. First and foremost, before any of that, is that you are created and beloved by God. And even if you walked out these doors and never came back here again to Pilgrim, that you would know that, that that message would be consistent and over and over again. And the funny thing is, is that when you get that and you keep hearing that and it, and it moves from your head into your being, those other things of life that the world wants to put on the top of the heap of identity, and, and sometimes it's individual, but it can also be your, a community, depending on if you're in a more community-oriented place or more individual. We live in kind of both in Vancouver. But that funny, if you're getting rooted in God's love in Jesus, how you then relate to good gifts and callings and abilities uh, and, and losing them, uh, uh, receiving them, losing them, using them or not, changes. And in some ways, you can become more, quote, successful in the eyes of whatever if that's not what you're trying to suck all your life out of. And I think that's something that's really important as well. And, and there are times, too, when we lose things. And, we, and, and, and then if that's all gone away, what do you have left in your identity? If your identity was so wrapped up in your ability to... Uh, I was a French horn player in high school. There's my, there's my band moment. Uh, if my whole identity was wrapped up in French horn playing and then I no longer could do it physically or or the opportunities just weren't there, or I would never was born in a place where I could go to whatever, I wasn't born next door to Juilliard or whatever, um, and that goes away and all those things go away, what's my identity that's left after all that's stripped away? And if it is a beloved child of God, that's something to continue to live into and build life upon. Um, this also brings up questions about made in Canada. I was just reading a story about not in this particular, but I mean, it raises questions of things like medical assistance and dying, right. and I was reading yep. about someone who, their abilities and their sickness, and I wonder what the church's right voice should be in that, in terms of affirming someone's agency. Oh, look at that. It's even on the questions. Okay. Hey. Wow. <laughs> 
I am charismatic. That was prophetic. I would just like to say, I'm just kidding. It was not. I mean, maybe, but not by intention by me. <laughs> uh, no, what are a medical assistant? Let's go with that. Um, I think the medical assistants in dying, you can go back to that question. Sorry. Um, because that does raise from that other one there. Uh, and man, they are like, Charmaine and Anne are like getting all of the, everything we pay them, uh, you know, they're, they're earning it today. Um, and Charmaine is a full volunteer, by the way, and does graphic design. So um, the, uh, the issue of the value of life. And here's the thing. If our life is defined so much culturally in terms of what we can produce, what we can do, then, then we, there's a certain amount of value then of the life that decreases. Now, I think there's a right for agency in terms of, like, I'm torn on this. I think, does a person have the agency in terms of saying, I'm, I want to end my life? Um, like, I really wrestle with this. I think there is a place when, who am I to say to someone that their quality of life, that they need to keep dealing with it? Mm. I, as, a, as someone who's Anabaptist, would argue, though, my bias is always going to be towards the preservation of life. My bias is going to be womb to tomb. Once we take life, none of us can give it back. Now, if the day reaches the place where medically we can easily bring people back after, after killing them or, or assisting them in their own die, death, then I might change ethically on this one. Until that day that we can easily resurrect the dead, um, uh, which as far as I know, that's still in God's court, uh, I'd be very hesitant about made because here's the thing you hear about people that when they've gone through a really dark place in life and then years later they reflect back on that, they have a very different view of what they thought at the time was, I just need to end this situation. And then they, they push through, either their community brings them through, or grit, or whatever, or they just, by the grace of God, are drugged through to a new season of life. And how they look back on those experiences are very different than how they thought they were at the time. So I think our human wisdom from our, our spiritual and religious cultures tell us that in the darkest moments, it's the wrong time to make a life-dealing or death-dealing decision. Uh, one of the one of the, oh, what was the Catholic guy that, uh, it's all, one of, the, one of the examine kind of questions, I don't know if it was Ignatius of Loyola or what, but the idea of uh, don't make the devil, well, the modern version of it is don't make, uh, don't make decisions when you're in that place of desolation. Mm-hmm. If you make a decision in a place of desolation, you're effectively making the devil, forces of evil, your spiritual director. Just FYI, you don't want the devil to be your spiritual director, right? So, you know, like the devil is steal, kill, and destroy you. So you don't want to be taking spiritual advice in those dark places that are about uh, ending truncating life or major decisions. So um, I said a lot about that. I don't know if you want to add anything or we should just move on to the next I, one. Uh, I wrote a paper on this. In school, <laughs> no, actually. do not read the paper. I'm not going to read the It's going to take 25 minutes to read uh, the paper and then discuss it. We'll be ordering um, lunch. Uh, get, yeah. get comfortable. No, That's a good no. one. Um, I'll just say, like... Don't be shocked if somebody you know close to you, a Christian, takes maid. Um, it, yeah, anyone can take maid. Uh, it's, it doesn't matter your beliefs and stuff. Like people, and at, again, like at that oh, point absolutely. of, yeah. you know, when you're at your lowest, like that is a very vulnerable place, and maid makes it accessible and easy for you to die. Um, it also brings up thoughts on suicide as well. I think what what are our thoughts on suicide. Um, and I think, again, when you're at the darkest place, you're the most vulnerable. Um, I almost see it akin to murder, that when, when you're, like, the devil is seeking to kill you, and 
at the point, like people think, oh, they t they chose to take their own life. I, I don't see it that way. I see it more closer to murder and allowing the devil to murder you. Um, yeah. Uh, so, but when it comes, to, oh, <laughs> there's a question I, about. I, I need to add one thing on made though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if someone has lived a full life, mm. um, however we want to define that, and I guess I would say mainly in terms of age. And I'm thinking of myself. If I get towards, I had two. Great grandmothers, great great. I can't remember. I am the skip generation or the get hit generation on Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, I think I would. I think if I've lived a full life and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm well down the road, and I think I'd want to be in conversation with my loved ones. But if I was completely like my body was basically killing me at this point, and and I'm no longer the same person, I'll be honest with you. As an Anabaptist who is womb to tomb pro life, like seriously, not necessarily think the government has all the answers on that. That's the caveat in that, by the way. Um, I don't know. I think that would be something I'd want to discuss with my loved ones while I still had enough of my agency. You know, yeah. um, I don't know. I just I'm gonna just throw that out there because yeah, I think I mean, there's something about a level of suffering where this is the resurrection of the dead and the life to come. So, yeah, I don't know. I'd wrestle with that, but I think it's to me what bothers me is when you've got like 20 year olds and 30 year olds. Like yeah, that, like to me, there's something about that, like. Man, like our mental development and all of that. I mean, unless I don't know, I, that bothers. They they are expanding made to include not just like okay. So bef when made was first introduced, you'd had to have like a death sentence. Like you were like doctors. Yeah, yeah. Said you're, you were gonna die in the next whatever many days, and you can choose to, you know, end your suffering now. Now uh, they're expanding it to include mental illness as well. So if you have a mental like you you feel like you just hate life and like in, if you're suffering mentally uh, they're expanding that or if they've already expanded it uh, to include that now there's still a lot of safeguards whatever but you know and you, and you can talk about budget also like are we also budgeting if we're going to budget for made are we also going to budget for um care if you're sick palliative care palliative care hospice care hospice care uh, mental health included, but yeah. yeah so so there's that whole aspect of it too um i think if i wanted to end with just one last thing it'd be uh, the idea of a good death like again like if you've lived a full life what what does it also mean to end well i think we need to struggle with that a bit more um i don't know what the answer is i haven't thought that deeply about, you know, let's say if I'm 85, 100 years old, you know. Easy. Some of us are closer to that than we are to be. I, you know, I don't, I don't, like, what, what, would, what would ending well yeah. mean? Um, is there something better than a medically assisted death? Uh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe being a missionary in the most dangerous place is <laughs> something to do. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Like, uh, like I'd prefer that, though. These are great. Man, uh, what yeah. is up? Like, holy cow. Like, sometimes it's, like, coffee and talk about... Like, these are... Woo! Yeah, it's like layers on layers today. Um, I wish we had another 20 of our crowd here. This is good stuff. They all need to hear this. They'll listen. Maybe they'll listen mm -hmm. later. Okay. What do you think a person... What do you think a person's soul... Where do you think, I, I, what, what do I think and where do I think a person or soul goes if they commit suicide, where? if they complete suicide? The short answer for me, and let's do this one short because we, yeah. Um, the short answer I think is this. God is not capricious. You're not going to be judged your ultimate, all of your life based on in an act where you're probably dealing, I mean, we, I would say suicide would be, you're in extreme distress mentally. You're probably not obviously in your fullest level of agency and competency, you're ending your life. 
I think God is going to judge by the grace of God in Christ. If you're a believer, you're going to be in heaven. You're going to be in the presence, spiritually present with Christ. Uh, or, well, there's some debates on where, where in before the resurrection. You're going to, wherever the good place is, you'll be there if, you're, if, you're, if you've cast yourself on God's grace. You may be there regardless. So I, what I would say is nice. Charmaine is telling us to stay on topic. Okay, so the... Uh, <laughs> well, I was supposed to read that out loud. Oh, you put it on the screen, though. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, I think the long and the short of it is is that God is not capricious. There were some people that taught that, you know, if you end your life, that basically that's a ticket to damnation. I, I think that's nonsense. Uh, there's no verse in Scripture that says that. Um, absolutely nonsense. So I would say, you know whatever the scales are in terms of if we've thrown ourselves on God's grace earlier in life, suicide doesn't undo that, you know? Yeah. Um, I think uh, they said those things like you're going to go to hell if you, if you commit suicide. To scare just people. To, to scare people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, and, and, Which and, is a horrible I mean, that, motivator. Yeah, that's a horrible yeah. way to motivate it. If it works, that's, it works. Huh? That's <laughs> spiritual <laughs> abuse, guys. That is, that's, that is spiritual Don't scare abuse. people that with is hell to, make, to try to motivate them to do things. Yeah. That is not... Okay. Next question. Could you speak to the phrase God turned his... Oh, no. Um, integrating faith and culture. Okay. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13, related to what to eat. How does a Christ-centered individual apply the principles to cohabitation before marriage? This is, this is a multiple-point question. You should have edited this down to one question. <laughs> one question at a time, guys. One question at a time. How does it apply to cohabitation before marriage? Choices available when a pregnant mother is alerted to abnormalities when with the baby. Okay, wow. Okay, those are two huge ones all put together in one question. All right, uh, so I'm going to edit on the fly. Let's talk about cohabitation before marriage. First uh, Corinthians chapter 8. Well, so the thing is about First Corinthians chapter 8, we're, we're particularly dealing with a cross-cultural issue of Christianity entering into pagan ancient Corinth and people worshiping uh, the gods there regardless of their sexual status at all. Uh, so that's sort of like a so there's not necessarily a one-to-one application is what I'm trying to say there. I would say in terms of what's common, the closest I can get in my mind right now is to say in our Canadian culture, in our Western culture, in most culture, I think probably globally, it's not uncommon for people to, to be living together without being married. Uh, so, um, and by living together, we are using euphemism for they are sleeping together, they're having sex, you know, all of that. So now, now we'll be nice, get it back to PG-13. Um, so what I would say there is, it's, I was staying on topic. That was straight on topic. All right. Um, that's actually getting me more off topic than the topic. <laughs> so you should take, take that off. If you're wondering, there's a thing that says stay on topic. So what do we um, do when, <laughs> when there's a biblical ethic of if you're going to be sexually active, it's best under, expressed within a covenant, a, a commitment to one another, a rugged I am for you, for life, I am for this. And, and so that, that's the consistency we see in Scripture, that 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 sex is beautiful and powerful and formative and shaping and, um, and there's issues of attraction and pull and all of those things. And generally speaking, the, the word of God actually has good things to say. I was raised in a super fundamentalist, almost fundamentalist Pentecostal church. Those two things shouldn't go together, but they did. Um, and purity culture, some of the worst versions of it. And I think the problem is it made such an evil, like your body, your body's good and fine. You can dance, you can shout, you can jump and worship. Uh, but, you know, every other environment, like there was a very negative, dark view of the body. And so the problem is we speak to the God calls us to be in covenant relationship with one another. And ideally, uh, you know, with another person, if, you, if you're called into marriage, um, I think the church has to walk in grace as well to recognize that most of us in this room have been shaped more by secular or other culture than by Jesus and the church. 
that unless you've been in home church every week this week and you've been in discipleship group and you've been in Sunday morning worship and also you're being intentionally missional in your home and out in the community, most of us are not at that level of following Jesus. If we're going to be real honest here at Pilgrim Church, most of us are not there. Um, we're not on mission. We're not, we're not living even like the, the false holiness of you know, an inward kind of thing. Most people aren't here. So we're all in a variety of ranges. And so as a pastor, from my perspective, I think you hold pastors, you hold elders, you hold your leaders to a higher level. First Timothy and Titus speak very directly to this. He should not be married to more than one woman, or she should not be married to more than one man. You know, like that's stated in black and white. Um, not that they have to be married, but they, if they are married, this is the, it needs to be in a covenanted uh, relationship with one other person. So I think the issue with this is walk in grace um, and time. And you, if you have a relationship with someone and they're cohabiting, then, then you may have the right to speak into their life, but do it in a way that doesn't push them away. They need to be in the house of God. They need to be part of the church. And someday, most people, uh, if they have any sort of Christian background, will get married. Well, we don't want to be such jerks about the fact that, yeah, they may be living more into other values that are not Jesus-y while they're in that place. Now, if you are uh, wrestling with that in your own life, I would challenge you. If you are called to be with someone, then be with them. Marry them. Uh, you know, do we, man, we can do a shotgun wedding on the lawn and you can do a big celebration later, whatever, <laughs> you know, I mean, oh wait, that's, that's sort of a, that's a U.S. thing, isn't it? Shotgun wedding in Canada, what would it be? be a, like, I don't know, yeah, a fentanyl yeah. white knife wedding. I don't know, Ooh. but, uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, no, I don't know. I don't know. What are the lethal, whoa, whoa. what are the lethal practices in Canada? That's what I, that's where I'm going with that. Okay. Lethal practices. Uh, stay on topic. <laughs> We're going to scratch that last bit from the record. That's going to be, uh, that's, uh, that did not happen. All right. Uh, do you remember that? I'm just gaslighting myself here. Okay. It never happened. <laughs> um, so I think that's important around the, the cohabitation is, is walking grace with people and yet challenge people to say, hey, if you're called and you love one another, um, marriage is, is, a, is a covenanted place where you're calling the community. Not only that, you're saying before people, before family, before God, you're saying we're going to be for each other. We're not just here to use each other and get as much pleasure or irritation out of each other and then just sort of cast it off if things get, you know, if it gets a little bumpy or somebody scuffs up the rims or whatever, you know, we're going we're gonna to build into this relationship. So I would say that culturally, if our church is reaching out to people, there will be couples all the time. In every church I've been at in the past, there's always been couples living together who were not married. Every church is we were on mission with God. So how are we going to hold that? We want that, by the way. Let me be clear. We want people to feel welcome here and yet challenged to maybe be a little bit uncomfortable and, and when they're wrestling with the scripture on sexuality as they become more aware that from a biblical perspective, sex is not just about, it's not just about uh, one act, pleasurable or whatever. It's about a commitment. It's about uh, a piece of a larger relational commitment. That, and, and so that's the call, this bigger relationship. So we want to invite people to hear about that and to lean into that. Because here's the thing, in our Western society, and even globally to some extent, sex has been reduced to a commodification of another person. Hmm. And if it's more convenient for me to get the commodity from you, and I still kind of like you, and I'm living together with you, then so be it. Covenant says, that other person is not a commodity and not to be disposed of if this relationship gets a little bumpy. We are now in this for life. And sex is about adding to value and joy and pleasure and maybe procreation as well. So I think, how do you help people think differently about their body and another person's body when we have been atomized in our culture in terms of others' bodies and our bodies. So there's a huge topic around that, just that one right there. Um, if you're here and you're living together, I would challenge you, 
And if you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, I would speak more clearly and say, would you really wrestle with the idea of, of being blessed in that relationship? We want to bless your relationship in every way we can. We don't want to have to be awkward around it. We don't want to have to, you know, and if wrestling with what that means. Now, again, the, the dark side of this is don't be a jerk to people that may be living together. That's awful. And they're in the church and they're wrestling with Jesus. No, don't be a jerk. That does not produce holiness in anyone. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where being a jerk produces holiness in another person ever, 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 ever. And yet I was raised in that environment. Man, we would read you the riot act on all the things, all the secondary, third level, all the things. But that does not usually transform people's lives. But I do want to call you into the ideal that you can live into this ideal. You can be married to someone. You can make a covenant relationship with God in a community. And we want to be for you 100%. Church is for marriage. One of the only places it probably really is really, really for marriage. Not just, not just contracts, not just the right to sue each other if it goes south in the secular law, but actually for you and your relationship. I really preached a whole sermon on that. Hmm? You got to keep it under There's two minutes. nothing if you're to add. add to that. Two minutes. <laughs> no, okay. Maybe I'll hit on the second question then. Which so is... Josh and Grace were recently married. So somebody read them. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, maybe I'll just hit on the second one, which is, I think if you ask the question of, is the human race less beautiful or more beautiful without, let's say, someone with Down syndrome? Um, I would say no. The human, as humanity as a whole, is not more beautiful without people with abnormalities. Um, I think again, asking that question also: Why are you procreating? Why are you having a baby in the first place? If the idea is, well, I have all these unlived hopes and dreams that I want to put on my kids, then you know that's not good. If you, if you want to have a kid because it's like, oh, um, I don't know, I wanted to be a parent or something like that. I don't think that's that's like that great of a reason to be a father or mother. Um, I think if if you also, if you're having, I mean, the way that, if you don't know, Grace is pregnant. Yay. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, okay, if, you, if you missed it. But it's like, we're, um, but, but you know, when we were talking about having a kid, I was, I was like, what if we, because there's so many things like, you know, sometimes we'll say, oh, uh, I really want my kid to play music or I really want my kid to be into tennis or we really want our kid to be really smart and really, really uh, loving and really hardworking and, and all these things. And we have all these dreams and, and hopes for our future kid. Um, but sometimes we just have to pause and be like, well, what if they are in none of those things? What if they do have, let's say, an abnormality, a Down syndrome, uh, a disfiguration of some point? Will you know? Would we let's say kill the baby or or something like that? And and of course we're we're saying no, um, and and it goes back to like why are we having the kid in the first place? Well, I think there's a huge again like why did we get married in the first place? What if um, what if our journey in raising a kid is also part of our journey towards uniting with Christ? What if? having a kid helps us to know God's father heart. What if that helps us uh, form into Christ's image? Uh, what if we saw it that way so that no matter who the kid is, we're learning how to love, how to, um, how to be like God, which was Genesis 1, you know, created in God's image, God the father. Well, I get to learn what it means to be a father. And I think if I point it all towards growing towards what is God fatherliness like then then yeah um so yeah thoughts on being alerted to the abnormalities of a baby 
another way for you to learn how to be like God. <laughs> um, yeah, this is, these, wow, like we're getting mm. three or four questions here in, and these are all just amazingly deep and complex. I mean, every situation is so unique, so personal. And, um, you know, I've been a pastor for 25 years, and I've spoken with women who have chosen to have an abortion, women who have chosen to not have an abortion. Um, my parents got married because I was on the way, and initially my father, well, not initially, my father did not want me to be born. So that's, that's got some personal pieces for me as well. Um, so choice is available, and I, and I think this is the, I think pastorally, it's one thing to say a moral statement about sort of a moral principle, and then pastorally, it's walking with people regardless of what they choose, and loving them through that is, is I think, the, the tone of the church, and yet we can teach about this idea of, of the value of life, wound of tomb, and, and yet, without even getting into laws, I'm just talking about the church's position, um, the value of life, and really wrestling with... Um, you know, yeah, I, I think you gotta. I think you have to handle that in context. I mean, it's really hard to pontificate on, in front of a big crowd about something like this. Whereas, I think the pastoral issue is what's going on in that person, what's going on in their relationship, what's going on with the baby, what's going on with the care, what's going on with the capacity there. I mean, like, there's all of these questions that are the next layer, um, and so we need to speak to the high level stuff absolutely. And we have, on the other hand, I would say. As a church within our tradition, I would I would say in general, it's how can we surround, support, and care for that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if and if the straight up ask me, say, what do you think, Pastor? Should we consider um, ending or terminating this pregnancy? I would I would put it back on them, and I would say this: my bias as a follower of Jesus, who as of yet we are unable to bring life back, uh, is towards the preservation of life. And as Josh talked about very nicely, kind of spelling out the shapes of how that can form you in your character, it's going to be a different life trajectory than you imagined. But guess what? Even when 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 a, when pregnancies come to term and the baby is from every other from every other, you know perfectly normal within the ranges of health, et cetera, et cetera, kids still make choices that will go against whatever you know. And so uh, if you haven't had teenagers yet, well, you know. <laughs> And I love mine, Oliver. Glad you're here. Uh, <laughs> but they're still going to make choices, right? Uh, and do you end them at the teenagers? You know. <laughs> now the temptation is certainly there. Some days. What was the Hebrew Bible saying? If you have a rebellious son, stone him. Take him to the elders, and they will stone him for you. I mean, we'll be starting the stoning the teenagers ministry yet. No kidding. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's horrible. Horrible. Where's the stay on topic thing, Charmaine? We need it. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, so to be honest, I'd say that this is something that we need to walk with in grace. Our, but if someone asked me, is your church uh, pro-abortion? And I would say, absolutely not. We're not, I'm not, if you're asking me, I'm not pro-abortion, I'm not pro-war, I'm not pro-death penalty, I'm not, uh, I mean, made, I struggle with maybe at the very end, you know, when you're experiencing a terminal disease and, and it's verified and all of that, I get that. But even then, my bias will always be to preservation. Like when the young man during the war and I was serving in a church in the States came to me and said, hey, I want to enlist uh, to the Air Force with my country and uh, hey, pastor, what do you think? And I said, well, my bias is towards the preservation of life. Can you express that patriotism in a way that doesn't involve killing other people, um, you know, and yet at the end of the day, he goes and makes his decision. That one didn't, but I had other uh, veterans in the church and we love and we walk with. And, and so I think we have to, can we lean into God's love in these cases while still talking about moral principles? I think that's kind of where, where I land with that. It's good stuff. I know we're getting late. Can we do one or two more? Or are you guys like just bored out, out of your mind? Okay. 
I mean, I know if it was your question, you're like, that's great. I'd love to hear it. Or, <laughs> you know, but if it's not your question, someone's going to be like, oh my goodness, someone, I, no, I think these are all great questions. Could you speak to the phrase, God turned his face away? We hear this phrase on both songs and also in regards to Jesus on the cross. Oh, wow. Uh, theologians debate this. this. This is like all over the map in terms of how to interpret that when he was on the cross. Um, the, so when Jesus is on the cross, Easter, we're going to get to Easter here soon. One of the phrases that's recorded in the gospel is this, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of dereliction is what it's called, by the way. That's sort of the fancy word for it. The cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where the son is suffering and this idea of the relationship between God, the father, the son, and the, and the spirit. What is going on there? Is there a split in the Godhead in this moment? Uh, some would kind of indicate that. Um, what, what's, what's the experience of Christ on the cross? And so I think this is, and here's the thing. Bible-believing people way more brilliant than me have debated this. I'm going to answer kind of how, in my like dumbed-down, simple way of thinking about this, is that when God puts on flesh part of the Trinity, and we're told that in Christianity, God is revealed as one and three, as an eternal relationship, that God has love because the very nature of God is relationship. And so when God creates, God is expressing God's love. When God enters into his creation by taking on human flesh in Jesus, part of the Trinity now becomes enmeshed with the matter of the world, the material, the physicality of the world. And on the cross, depending on what's happening, one view of atonement, what Jesus does on the cross is that God is putting on all the sins and brokenness of time on Christ and that in one sense God uh, is all holy, all good, all loving and does not look upon that as, as God is also present at the same time. So is there a split? I would say no, but in, the, in, in one sense, God is, is doing both acts in this thing. God is taking on everything in himself, in Jesus, and the Spirit and the Father are also in some ways um, reacting to this sense of the horror of all of human evil being poured out on God's self. And so there's almost like a, a, a psychological, something's going on in the experience of God, right? So I think that's one way to look at that. I don't believe that there was a split in the Trinity, I don't believe that in some ways because Jesus was fully God. We're told that, but he emptied himself of some of his divine attributes to put on flesh to be truly human. And that in that, God enters into all our pain. And so I think it's an expression of God experiencing the fullness of pain, including the pain of abandonment. Mm. Have you ever felt so dark and lonely that you feel like you've been completely abandoned, completely left? And so I think this is one of the things I'd wrestle with too, that in this God is experiencing some level of abandonment or separation, but not a complete split because Jesus is still God on the cross. He doesn't stop being God. So there's something happening in that relationship there um, that we're experiencing that is extreme horror that Jesus is experiencing on the cross. Um, so yeah, that's a good, good question. I mean, there's a lot of debate on how does that take on. Um, if we push it too far to say that there was a split in the Trinity, then, then that, that I, I can't go there because that makes no sense because then part of God is not experiencing the, the cross in some way. And I, I can't, yeah, I don't know. You, you, got, you just graduated from Bible call or from seminary. And, uh, Come on now. I was thinking about the song we did today. How long to turn your face away? Um, so did I, I think, just make that way more complex and it was about that song? Uh, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Well, okay, so there's a difference between God because God's not a physical being, right? So he doesn't have a face to like turn away. What we, what we, when we sing about that or when people write about, oh, you know, how long will you turn your face away or God will turn his face away, um, what we are, ex what, what, what's happening is we're experiencing as if God's face is turning away. 
Um, again, like, does God have a physical face? No, if God is spirit. Um, so he's the, not all spirit. He put on flesh. Okay, Christ. well, okay. So there's God part of, of the flesh. Trinity. This yeah, is the problem this, in the Trinity. Yeah, this is like, where it gets really yeah, confusing. Yeah. But 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 what we're, what the writers usually are talking about is the experience of God's face turning away. Now, what that means to the biblical writers and what we sing about is this idea that God is not seeing us. He's not seeing our plight. He is not seeing, um, and that he's not coming and rescuing us. Because if he saw us, if he knew the pain that we're experiencing, surely our God is good and he would come and help us, right? Um, but yet our human experience, we know that sometimes we suffer for long periods of time without that salvation coming in and breaking through. Um, so that experience of God turning his face away. Now, it does also say, I think some of the prophets talk about, um, you know, he will turn his face away because you neglected justice and mercy and compassion. You know, he doesn't care about, I think today's reading, if you read the lectionary, is about, um, you know, does God care about the thousand sacrificed rams or whatnot? Isn't not to, you know, love justice, uh, walk humbly before your God. Um, so we experience, there, there's kind of like that, explanation of, you know, if you neglect justice and mercy, the prophets talk about, you know, God will turn his face away. Mm -hmm. And that experience is more so like when you're living, let's say, let's say you are living in sin or we're just experiencing the, the effects of sin or all around us. Um, there are consequences to that sin and and sometimes it's our fault sometimes it's not our fault sometimes we're just again facing the the weight of the world and so the experience of god how long will you like not look at what we're experiencing how long will you until you save us now we do have a hope we have first we we had jesus come um, and we also have the hope that Jesus will come again. You know, Amen, Lord, Jesus come. That's one thing that we believe. If we, we cite it in the um, Apostles' Creed, we believe that Jesus will come again. Um, so the experience of God turning his face away will not last. We do have hope. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's good to point out. I mean, I went towards the dereliction on the cross, which is kind of a separate thing from the poetic use of God turning his face away, and which is in Hebrew Bible a lot, this, this phrase of, the blessing of God versus the, the presence of God versus the absence, that kind of thing. So, yeah, thank you, Josh. See, that's why we have more people up here, because we're getting the d different pieces of that. Um, good stuff. Okay, I think we probably should end it. We are past noon here, and we're going to pray together. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm, we've got a ton of questions? Okay, well, we've gone 48 minutes, and normally if we call it around this time, 48, 45, right in there. Um, well, we'll do a to-be-continued, or send your question in next time. If you find this useful, invite people to it uh, because that's one of the things we want to do. So it's not just an internal dialogue, but also people that are curious. And we will do it again uh, on a fifth Sunday month. And um, yeah, feedback is important. Uh, how did Josh join us first time? <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Very good. And uh, nobody howled boo or anything. So that's very good. Very good. Well. We, because we've gone this time, uh, we, let's just stand and pray uh, a benediction. And if you need personal prayer, um, I'll be available.